Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode number 445 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Monday, September 19th, 2022, and we are back. We get to review some football. Uh, The point god is now a WNBA champion, but we're also going to get into some new draft eligibility rules that could be coming from the NBA. I'm Donald Wine, your host for this episode. I have Jason Evans and Sam Klein with me. Sam is in Paris, Jason in Atlanta. We're going to dispense with the pleasantries that we normally do because Jason has had a long, long day and his day continues uh, with the news coverage over at CNN. So we he has to disappear in a little bit. So we're going to get right into things. We start with the NBA. Now, just this morning, uh, there was talk about the NBA collective bargaining agreement. And within that, there, there have been some uh, negotiations on what to do when they extend it. Now, the big thing, there's a lot of things that are going to be under, you know, revision here. But the one thing that has come out of it that is pertinent to our discussion today is that there could be new draft eligibility rules, namely the age eligibility for the NBA draft as soon as the 2024 NBA draft could drop from 19 years old to 18 years old. That would mean that high school players will would then be re at least be eligible once again to make the leap directly to the NBA and bypass college. So uh, I want to start there. The the, a lot of people think that this is hopeful of being passed in in the near future. They have until December 10th under this old collective bargaining agreement negotiation period to get this done. But Jason, I want to go to you first because I think this would be obviously a big deal for college basketball, but of course for Duke, because as of right now, this one and done period that we have been a part of for the last, you know, 12 or 13 years could be near in its end and it could have an obvious effect on recruiting. Yeah, this would be a very significant thing for Duke uh, basketball when one and done didn't exist when kids could go directly from high school to the NBA. It was sort of, uh, you know, coach K was still a stud recruiter, but you know, we weren't necessarily going after those guys who were going to go directly to the NBA. And uh, it, it was just a, a different time. And, and the decisions about whether you would play in college or go directly to the NBA were very different than they have become in recent years. So, uh, this this would be a seismic shift for Duke basketball. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll give you a great example. In that class of 2024, the high school class of 2024, which is where they're saying this would take effect, it would begin with the 2024 NBA draft, which is essentially the, the high school guys who are graduating in the year 2024. There are a number of guys that Duke is very interested in, that Duke has been pursuing, who I think would probably take advantage of this and go directly to the NBA. I'm talking about Nas Cunningham. Bryson Tucker, Trey Johnson. Those are three guys who are in the top 10 in that class who have Duke very high on their lists, who Duke has been in contact with for a while. And my suspicion is that John Shire would need to ask these guys a tough question, which is, are you planning to play college basketball at all? And I I think there's a fairly decent chance that all of them would say, no, I I think I'm probably not. I'm probably going to go directly into the draft. And as a result, it you know, it it would severely impact who Duke would recruit in those classes. I want everyone to understand something, though. I'm of the belief that this is actually a good thing for Duke University. I believe that the whoever the top players who go to college may be, whoever those guys are, Duke is going to be one of the primary destinations, if not the 
primary destination for them. So it may be that rather than getting guys who are in the top five and top 10, the top guys, the guys who are going to college are guys who are ranked 15th, 18th, 20th, somewhere in that kind of ballpark. And that's who Duke's going to be pursuing. That's not a bad thing. In fact, I think that probably leads us to a, a situation where these guys are a little more invested in college, where they're sticking around a little bit longer. Look, when you look at guys that Duke has recruited in the 15s, 20s, up to about you know 30th in the rankings, it's guys like Jeremy Roach, who's been around for a few years, Wendell Moore, who's been around for a few years. It's not, you know, sometimes it, yeah, sometimes it's a guy like Trevor Keels who's one and done. Sometimes it's a guy like Cassius Stanley who ends up being one and done. But a lot of those guys in that ballpark, in that range, are guys who've stuck around. And I think there's going to be even more incentive, so to speak, for them to stick around because they are guys who have already decided I am more interested in college than I am in the NBA. And Jason, am I completely me, off? Am I completely off base well, on this, Sam? Let let me take a let me take a slightly alternate uh like set like view on this based on history and what i'm thinking about is not how those players thought about themselves like coming out of high school but i am thinking about a number of the should be cautionary tales on guys who leapt to the pros after their freshman season who probably shouldn't have and and duke look duke's had had a few of these guys in recent years dj stewart uh trevon duval last yeah. year trevon duval um, unfortunately, Duke has had a number of these guys who left after freshman year. And and I wonder, and by the way, a number of guys who came in ranked pretty high who didn't make huge impacts their freshman season. Marquise Bolden is a is a great recent example of this. And Matthew Hurt. Matthew Hurt. And I wonder how many of those players, I and mean, this is part of the reason, you could say this was like the altruistic reason that the NBA went the way it did 15 years ago, was that, they were trying to prevent kids from making the wrong decision. They were also trying to admittedly get out of the business of scouting high school basketball, because what's the point of, you know, if you can't, if you can't draft those players, then you don't need to send scouts to high school games, which really limits how big your scouting budget has to be. Now they're basically opting back they're potentially opting back into scouting high school players. I wonder how many of those guys are going to make bad decisions in the 10, 20 ish range. And then the way that that filters down to Duke is that Duke may spend a lot of time with a kid who ultimately decides to take the NBA route instead of the the college route to begin with. And it'll be a big adjustment for John Shire, especially relative to some of his his competitors in in college basketball coaching, because Bill Self remembers what it's like to recruit guys uh, to not have to, and to have to compete with the NBA. John Calipari remembers how to do that. John Shire's never worked in that world, and he's actually going to have to learn a lot about how to read between the lines on which kids are, you know, if a kid is ranked 15th, he's not necessarily going to the NBA, and he's not necessarily coming to college. He has he has choices now, and John Shire doesn't know how to, how to, how to have that conversation yet. Look, Sam, the, the big question that we can't figure out is what the NBA would do with these guys. There are certain guys that are no-brainers. You know, it's really easy to know, like Nas Cunningham, who Duke's recruiting in the class of 2024. Not, not Nas Cunningham's going to be an NBA player. <laughs> there's, there's very little question about that. Uh, Apollo Bancaro last year. There was no question about it. And I think guys like that probably move on to the NBA. The question's going to be, 
those sort of, like you say, those mid-range kind of guys. And I really wonder what the NBA is going to do about them because the NBA doesn't want to be wasting first-round draft picks on them if they're unsure. But, Jason, if we're moving to a model where the NBA is investing in the G League now, this is another huge change from what it looked like 15, 20 years ago. The NBA now supports a G League team. I think for every team in the NBA, there's a G League team, which means there are now roster spots for these guys, which there were not when when the NBA stopped uh, drafting high school players back in 2006. Yo, but these guys aren't going to the NBA to make even a two-way contract, which is a half a million dollars. It's great money. These guys think they're going to the NBA to make big money, um, and they're foregoing college name, image, and likeness stuff. I mean, they're... There's a lot happening here. It is, it's about to get really crazy. So I think for me, right, like go back 20 years ago when we already had players going to the NBA from high school. First of all, it wasn't that many. It wasn't like we had a wave of like 50, 60 guys who were just skipping college and going straight to the pros. It was just a select few. And we obviously have a lot of cases of, of guys that made it. You know, you have the LeBrons of the world. But we also have like the John Swifts of the world, the people that you've never heard of that went out of high school, got drafted and nothing. You never really heard from them again. I say that because I think people should understand that just because the avenue was open doesn't mean everyone's going to take it. And it doesn't mean everyone should take it. There's also on the other side, one thing that they have not discussed is if you go to college, you can still leave after your first year. So we could still have one and duds if someone wants to go and make make a case in college that, hey, I'm going to, you know, college is the best path for me to the NBA. That's great. There's some people who are going to say my best path to the NBA is just to go straight there. That is really back in the day, it was reserved for the select few that were going to be super great. And teams didn't take a chance on that. And I also think with the G League, I don't think that really adds anything to it because they've already had that path of going through the G League. Now, this is just a these are the guys who I think they think they are at the level that they do not need college to make it in the NBA. I don't think there's that many high school players in any class that can say that and really, I mean, truly it be a thing. And I that's that's where I'm at right now with this. And I think, yes, getting those players and letting them go to college or go to the NBA is one thing. But I don't think is everyone. And I think Duke is still going to get some great recruits that might do well their first year in college and still leave. It's just a possibility. But I think this other avenue, I think it is great for those guys who just do not want anything to do with college. Donald, I think you are greatly underrating the ability of people to overrate their own abilities, so to speak. (laughs) We've already done this before. I mean, this, this didn't happen 20 years ago. And now we have, as you mentioned, we have name, image, likeness. So before there was even a knock against college of, hey, if I go to college, I'm not going to make any money. They still can make some money. I know it's not as much as NBA money, but we're not going to have 60 guys going pro. That's just not this is not the reality. I, I, I agree. Probably not 60. But every year, every year we see guys declare for the NBA draft who have no business being in the draft. Guys who are not going to make it onto an NBA roster. And they declare anyway, and they go, oh, I think, you know, I got my shot. I'm going to, and it doesn't work out for them. You're going to see that happening with high school guys as opposed to happening with college guys. And I actually think it's a good thing when these guys get to go, are forced to go to college because then they learn. Like in high school, you can be a dominant player and think I can play with anybody. 
And then you get to college and you're surrounded by other guys who are dominant players. And suddenly you realize, oh, I've got a lot more to learn. And that process may be eliminated for some of these guys. One other really, really quick thing I wanted to mention about all this, just super fast. This, this will affect guys who are deciding whether or not to turn pro in the class of 2023. A guy like, I don't know, Caleb Foster or Jared McCain. Even potentially, you know, guys who maybe have stuck around at Duke for an extra year. People, a lot of talk, Kyle Filipowski may stick around for another year at Duke. It could affect someone like that because the 2024 draft could be loaded in a way we haven't seen a draft loaded in a long time. If there are even 10, and there are probably more than 10, but if there are even 10 guys from the class of 2024 who enter the 2024 draft, suddenly you have pushed back a bunch of guys who are mid-first round picks to being second round picks. And it could really impact who decides to turn pro from 2023. Uh, going back to the college thing, I think the one thing for me that this does not address, and again, this is kind of on the NCAA to address it, is that it does not force anyone if they go to college to stay there. And it, that was the issue with well, a lot of people had an issue with the last time we had high schools going straight, because it's not like baseball, where if you, you know, everyone's eligible out of high school. But if they go to college, they have to stay for three years. Or they have to stay until three years out of their high school class. And they are in that way, they are forced to be there and acclimate and, and you know, use college and get a degree and all this stuff. I don't think this exists in this model. And I think the NCAA is going to be a point where the NCAA and the NBA are going to have to figure out a way to come together and make a rule that makes it beneficial for both of them. The problem is, you know, we don't trust the NCAA make a ham sandwich with us right now. Um, and, and even this NIL business that they kind of, you know, last minute juggled and, and laid on the table is a direct result of that. So I, I think the issue here is, yeah, there's going to be guys that get go pro that may make the wrong decision out of high school or in college because nothing has changed in the college front. It's just that some of these guys may make that decision before they get to college. Some of these coaches are going to develop interesting uh, uh, reputations around the kind of advice that they're giving to high school students and the way that it works out for them, because there's something to be said for the the Coach K approach, at least the one that we've heard, which is that he shows up to a recruit and says, you know, you're going to come here and work hard and here's what I'm guaranteeing will happen and here's what i'm not guaranteeing what will happen to you and there's a level of honesty i think that that goes a long way in that pitch the way that coaches deliver that pitch is going to change dramatically in a world where they really are meaningfully competing with the nba with nil in the picture and with all these other things going on because before admittedly like coaches were not great at this there were also not that many guys that were turning pro right out of high school now, a lot more guys are turning pro out of high school and you have NIL, which means there are there are, you know, in, in the old world, there were maybe five or six players that we wondered about every year. What are they going to do, whether they go to college or whether they go to the NBA every year? Now, it'll be 20 or 30 players probably who heading into April may or may not have committed to a school uh, of their senior year, you know, April of their senior year. But we won't really know what their plan is until June. All right, one quick thing to wrap all this up. We don't know what's going to happen. The, the There still hasn't been a definitive agreement between the Players Association and the NBA. And they've sort of gone down this path before where they've talked about changing the one and done rules. And then they end up negotiating, they end up talking and they go, oh, you know what? 
let's table that for a little while longer. So this may never come to pass. It's something that we're here to speculate about, but you know, it, it, it could be just whistling into the wind. And let me tell you who's not in the room during collective bargaining between the NBA and the NBA Players Association, the NCAA, the ACC, Duke University, John Shire, anyone representing high school basketball players, AAU, high school coaches, et cetera. There are a lot of parties here that are affected that Duke fans care about that are not in the room when this decision gets made. And you have to keep all of that in mind because they are looking, the NBA is looking out for what's the best way that we are going to spend money and make money as, as businesses. And the players association is thinking, how do we funnel money the best way possible to our existing membership and the guys who are likely going to be in our membership in the next four or five years. And Sam, do you know who is in the room? 30 guys representing 360 guys whose jobs will be on the line if they increase the number of people who are eligible for said jobs. So that is also a big thing when you when you have them in the room as well. Jason, last word. Okay, here's my last word. The brotherhood has become a big deal. And part and parcel of the brotherhood is the fact that these guys are stud pros. I want you to envision how much of a brand the brotherhood would be if Kyrie Irving... Jason Tatum, Zion Williamson, R.J. Barrett were not Wendell, uh, um, Wendell Carter, Marvin Bagley were not a part of it, because if if this rule hadn't existed, forcing guys to come to school for one year, those guys would have all gone directly to the NBA. So, the Brotherhood, which is fabulous and brings us recruits and brings us attention, could take a serious hit if this happens. Yeah, that is a great point. And I mean, hell, some of them might have, if they were able to go like as juniors in high school, they might have done it. Like Zion was good enough that people were like, yo, he'd be the number one pick right now. And he's a yo, junior that's in what, high school. That's what Marvin Bagley essentially did. I mean, he reclassified. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it, it's it's going to be fun to watch how that happens uh, and how it unfolds. It, it, we could have a new deal that has all this in place or Jason, like you said, nothing may happen. And we just may, you know, all the talk may lead to a lot of, of nothing but chatter, but we'll leave it here. We're going to pause for a quick break. Jason has to go back to work, uh, so we'll let him get back to work. And then on the other side, we got the point guard and we got football. More after this. All right, everyone, we are back and we shift to the gridiron. And for the first time in a while, Duke football is 3-0, and which we are proud to say uh, came at the result of a 49-20 defeat or victory over NCANT last weekend at Wallace Wade Stadium. Uh, Sam, I know you were in Paris, uh, so let me give you a rundown of what you know kind of went down in this game. First of all, by I, the I way, Donald, Donald yes. I, I have been reading the Jim Sumner recaps and watching the highlight clips, so, you know. Let's say I'm let's say I'm baseline knowledgeable, but why don't you just give the people a little bit of background? If you read the Jim Sumner, what I watched the game, you probably know more about it than I do because that's how thorough his recaps are. Um, Jim Sumner, uh, Substack, we are we are we are big 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 proud endorsers of that. Uh, but anyway, let's talk about this game. I want to start with this stat right here first: ten offensive possessions. That's how many possessions that Duke had in this football game. 
Now, one of those was a kneel down with like 12 seconds left in the first half that in, took us to halftime. The last possession was basically a four minute drive that was designed to end the game. And it did. It just, we just kind of ran out the clock from there. So think about it. Eight full possessions on offense. We had six touchdowns, just one interception, and just one punt. Sam, I did the math on this. The math tells me that's very good. Do you agree? Yeah, the the one punt was was one of the stats that leapt out to me. Uh, if you're not if you're not punting the ball and you're not giving it away, you must be scoring it. So that's a uh, that's an incredible sign for Duke. Granted, I mean, you know, all of this is 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 with the uh, understanding that Duke was not playing one of its toughest ACC opponents. It was playing North Carolina A and T, but but not giving up the football is is pretty impressive. Yeah, and they also had a scoop and score. Dwayne Carter scored a touchdown, uh, I believe it was late in the first quarter, off of a, a fumble recovery. So even the defense was getting involved. The special teams started off with Jalen Stinson running the ball back, like I believe 67 yards to set up the first score, which was on the first play from scrimmage. So, And, and, and I love, Donald, I love that one too, because there is an element, especially when you're playing a team like NCA&T, who's, who's not that good, there's an element of just like, you know, step on the gas and and don't let up right at the beginning of the game, like put it out of reach uh, for folks that watch that Alabama, Texas game the other day, which has been one of the highlight games of college football early in the season. You could really blame Alabama for not, you know, for, for not just running away from Texas and having to fight at the end of the game, which is certainly not the game plan that they expected going in. I like that Duke was able to do that early was, was get the kickoff return and then get a very quick touchdown. Yeah, and and I like that all areas of the fo- uh, of you know offense, defense, special teams all got in having made big plays, right? Like we we see games where the offense will carry or sometimes the defense carry, but everyone was involved. Every you know on defense, everyone was again was running to the football. They uh, with when we had garbage time, they kind of let up, and NCANT had a couple of scores late in the fourth quarter. But for you know thirty five, I'm sorry, for forty five minutes of the game, these guys were on it, and they were making tackles they were making big plays they were getting uh themselves off the field so that the offense could come back and the average duke possession started at the duke 41 yard line so they had great field position the entire game and i i I did want to correct myself i i may have said earlier that duke didn't turn the ball over at all i meant that they didn't turn the ball over that many times uh riley leonard did throw a pick uh, Mm -hmm. i believe it was in the third quarter so it's not um not one that was (laughs) it was during like a crunch time part of the game, which really was only in the first quarter when Duke sort of created the lead that that A&T was not able to come back from. So Duke did turn the ball over. Riley Leonard did have one interception, otherwise had a had a pretty nice game under center, not having to throw the ball that often, which is also a, a fairly promising development. I believe he completed all of his passes. Um, he was 11 for 12 on passes. The one in the one incomplete pass was the interception so um yeah in a way you could say that's a he, perfect day he found he found some hands <laughs> he found just some hands on every single every single ball he threw now obviously we'll, we'll try to uh limit the turnovers which they did but they also got two again two fumble recoveries on defense one of them a scoop and score now sam i i want to lead that into the next game because we play kansas this weekend and what has now become kind of a interesting battle because uh, this stat again blew my mind. This is the first time in college football history that the blue bloods of basketball, Kansas, Kentucky, UNC, and Duke, 
all start three and zero. So two of those teams, Kansas and Duke, will meet on the field. Only one of them can be four and zero. And Kansas has done you know very well. Duke has done very well. I don't know how much you've seen of Kansas. I've seen a little bit. Um, but tell me, what does Duke have to do to get to four and zero this weekend against the Kansas team that is up you know on the rise? Man, what a what a strange time to be alive. <laughs> that uh that this is the situation I, I i'm look i'm not going to pretend that i'm that i'm the kansas football expert uh i'm sure that the duke players between having an easy relatively easy win against a and t this weekend and kansas getting a lot of publicity for some big wins early in the season means that duke is absolutely taking this opportunity seriously they do have to travel to um to lawrence for this game which also sort of brings a, a heightened level of um you know of awareness at the opportunity that is ahead for Duke. Kansas has better wins this season than Duke does. Duke has one really impressive victory and two nearly expected victories. The one on the road against Northwestern, who then proceeded to not have a great performance this past weekend. Uh, maybe they were maybe they were a little hungover from that loss against Duke. Kansas has had good wins this season. Duke is very aware of that. Kansas is getting publicity now from some national media outlets for having a surprisingly great beginning to their season. I don't know if the Duke players are aware of that, but I'm sure the Duke coaches are aware of that. People around the Duke program know that. So guess what? If Duke takes down Kansas this week, it is not Duke taking down traditional Kansas football. It's taking down another team that's on the rise. And maybe then Duke gets to uh, to occupy that spot in the in the national media. Do I think that if Duke beats Kansas, this coming week in Lawrence that they're going to be ranked in the AP poll next week. No, probably not. Probably takes a few more wins for that to happen. Duke does not get the benefit of the doubt when it comes to the football polls, but you want to steal that, that uh, talking point. You want to steal that national media spotlight away from upstart Kansas. They know exactly what they have to do. I, I, I certainly hope. Yeah. And honestly, when you think about it, it's another opportunity for an ACC team to get a non-conference win against another power five conference in the big 12. And I I think if Duke can go to Lawrence and beat Kansas as much as you, as like you said, as much as the national media has kind of started to talk about Kansas as one of those rising, you know, stars in the big 12, a a victory against them could then go, Hey, Duke might be a team that people need to look out for. And again, when we talk about bowl eligibility, I think at the start of the season, we said, hey, if we can go three and one in the non-conference part of the schedule, that's great. We'll take that and run because, you know, we'll need three wins in, in, in conference to get to that bowl game. But now you have an opportunity to go four and oh and enter the conference part of the season with a lot of momentum. And I think these guys are locked in as, as you know, Jim Sumner said on this very show, he said that. They're looking to compete every single week. This is another chance for them to compete against a team that a lot of people have said have markedly improved. If we beat them, then Duke might be the story on Sunday morning uh, across the country. So uh, let's let's hope that Duke gets another W. We w- go 1-0 this week, move to 4-0 in the season. Again, that game is Saturday. I believe it's a noon start on the East Coast uh, in Lawrence. So everyone, make sure you tune in and watch that. Before we get out of here, we want to send some congratulations over to the Las Vegas Aces who uh, defeated the Connecticut Sun to win their very first WNBA championship. But we're not necessarily talking about the Aces, although they had a very good season. We want to talk about the point god, 
That point guard is Chelsea Gray, former Duke legend, and she was the WNBA Finals MVP. Again, helping the Aces bring the very first professional championship to the state of Nevada. They were very, very hyped about that. Uh, Sam, I've watched a lot of this postseason for the WNBA, and Chelsea has just been absolutely incredible. Uh, and the, in, in, in the finals, she shot 55% from three, but she had a lot of clutch threes. And she had that clutch gene that we saw a lot in college. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a great, great sight to see her uh, do so well and get the ring that she finally deserves. I'm reading some of the recaps from from these games, and I, I see that Chelsea Gray, this is according to CBS, Chelsea Gray either scored or assisted on 379 of the Aces' 860 points, which is 44% usage. That's the most by a single player in WNBA postseason history. That's, That's so good. cool. That's, That's pretty good. When, when you say when you say point god status, that is point god status. That is uh, she is indispensable to her team getting buckets. Yeah, I, like I said, the clutch gene is what really fascinated me because there are points where, like, if you looked online and if you weren't watching the game, you almost found out. Oh, I should have been watching this game because Chelsea Gray had big moment after big moment after big moment throughout these playoffs and especially in the finals. But there was definitely times where people who I didn't know watch basketball were like, yo, Chelsea Gray is the point guard, and she is. Uh, so congratulations to her. Congratulations to the Las Vegas Aces. I will also note Becky Hammond in her first season as head coach for the Las Vegas Aces. She wins the title. She's coach of the year. A, a very, very big accomplishment for, for her and for that coaching staff and for that team. So uh, congratulations to her and also to the point guard. We salute you. So before we get out of here, Sam, I know we didn't get to do the whole hellos and everything uh, at the beginning because we had to get Jason back to CNN. But you have been in Paris the last few days. We missed you on the last show. So tell us, how has it been? Uh, Paris is awesome. Donald, you in particular were extremely helpful in sending me recommendations of places to go. But for anybody who has been in this city before, I think the the main takeaway is you don't need that many recommendations. You can just sort of figure it out. And when it comes to eating in a city that is world class for that sort of thing, uh, I was here this weekend because my sister was getting married here and uh, we had the wedding yesterday. It's now uh, about six o'clock on the East Coast at the moment of our recording, which means it's a little after midnight Monday headed into Tuesday. I am flying back tomorrow. I needed most of the day today to recover from this event. It was uh, it was completely out of control and uh, I'm very uh, feeling feeling great about all that. So it was awesome to see friends and family uh, and and celebrate with my sister and her husband, who it uh, turns out is super cool. And neither of them gives a lick about college basketball. So uh, <laughs> so uh, we didn't have to talk about Duke basketball basically at all this weekend, which, uh, you know, was sort of it was weird, uh, but also like, OK, I, I'm just. I'm just not kind of recharge the batteries a little bit. I'm not in. Yeah, exactly. I'm not in that world this week. So uh, I am I am admittedly excited to uh, to get back into it this season. Now, I saw uh, on your social media, obviously, we're friends on social media as in real life. uh, I saw you did some dancing. I'm not going to tell everybody your handles uh, to go watch that. But I thought it was pretty cool that you saw you saw you having a good time. uh, Yeah, pretty cool. Let me tell you about let me tell you about this. Because I feel like there's a when you 
at least for folks who are still in the I go to weddings and have fun stage, I feel like at a certain point you kind of stop having fun at weddings. I think I'm still <laughs> right in that. Maybe I'm on the maybe on the back side of that. I'm 33, but uh, I'm still at the age where you know you go to a wedding and you judge mostly on how fun it was, and you're always trying to figure out like what's the what's the ratio what's the ratio and the timing of like dancing to sitting time. Uh, th- this wedding was was mostly devoid of sitting time. The uh, there was a lot of dancing that was going on at uh, the dinner tables during the food service, and uh, it was. It was nuts. Like people were dancing on chairs while there was like uh, some, I think there was like some ravioli or something being served. And uh, I I had to like make sure not to fall into it because I was like <laughs> swinging a napkin above my head, uh, standing on a chair. So yeah, it was, uh, it was out of control. Okay. So final question about Paris. Was this your first time in Paris, by the way? This is my second time in Paris. I was in high school the first time I came and I remember very, li- I remember only, like tourist memories of it. Like I remember being in the Louvre and seeing the Mona Lisa, which is totally the most overrated uh, tourist attraction in history. Uh, but uh, so I don't remember food. I don't remember that much about walking around, uh, which are really like to me, the, the the main attractions of this place. So my last question would then be uh, the coolest non, obviously the wedding was the highlight, but the coolest other highlight that you had uh, while you were there. I know you're there Ooh. quite a, a few days. Oh man, uh, I'm trying to think of which meal I had was the best. If if you're not a uh, if you're not a consumer of of uh, fats that come from animals, uh, this is not <laughs> this is not your destination. Not the city. I had um, I had this one cheese pastry the other day. I believe it's called a gougere, uh, which is like uh, it's. I, I'd say it was most similar to a in in American terminology, it'd be most similar to a biscuit. But if a biscuit was like uh, real cheesy, like it had a like Swiss style cheese in it and um, like real flaky and also like had this like perfect like golden crust to it. uh, I was eating that and I was like, it's dumb that other baked goods have to exist in the same (laughs) in the same world where this thing exists. So I think I think that was my. I think that was my my culinary treat of the week. And most of the rest of my time, um, if I wasn't eating, I was just walking around the city. And it's just it's just an incredible place to be. So I'm very glad I was I I did check the the schedule. Obviously, I didn't get to choose the date that I came here. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain was not in town for the uh, two games that they played while I was here. They were they were on the road at both of them. My my brother, PSG was actually playing at Lyon. This weekend mm-hmm. uh, on Sunday, and my brother-in-law, my new brother-in-law, is a Lyon fan, uh, and uh, so I told him, I said, "Look, if you want to move the wedding to Saturday, and then have everybody just go to Lyon on Sunday for the for the match, that would be fun too." Uh, but he said that my sister would not have uh, would not have allowed that sort of thing. So uh, here we are. Well, that leaves something for next time you go to Paris uh, or to Lyon, um, which I also I also Donald for now that we're now that we're just fully transitioned to soccer uh, on Wednesday or Thursday of this week. uh, PSG were playing uh, Maccabi Haifa in a Champions League game. And uh, I know I've I know I've mentioned before on the show, so I'm, I'm Jewish. I have a lot of relatives who live in Israel. And I'm always asking them about the about the sports fandom. So my Israeli cousins all root for a different Israeli team. They don't root for Maccabi Haifa. 
And I was mm-hmm. asking them whether, like in Champions League, obviously Israel is not like, you know, the 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 biggest country in terms of like sending teams to Champions League. They I assume don't don't have many Champions League champions in their in their past. And so I asked, all right, when when a team like Maccabi Haifa, who you don't like in the local league, is playing a team like PSG, which is like full of all stars and is like a super team, um, who are you rooting for? And my cousin was like. I really, really, really don't want to root for Maccabi Haifa in any in any circumstance. I guess the equivalent here for college basketball would be like if you're, you know, rooting for a school in like the Atlantic Sun um, and some team from the Atlantic Sun like rises up in the in the NCAA tournament. Are you rooting for them or not? Um, and my cousin was like, I can't like the the hatred is is like too deep and uh, and too well established. I couldn't possibly root for Maccabi Haifa even against PSG. And my my cousins, by the way are also, I don't know how they ended up with this affiliation, but they're also Manchester United fans, I guess, because you want to root for one of the one of the popular teams too. So I don't think they're thinking about it from that lens. I think they're mostly thinking about it from their like local Israeli team lens. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, shout out Josh Cohen, the lone American on Maccabi Haifa. So uh, that that's pretty cool. He's the goalkeeper on the team. But I'm glad you had fun in Paris. Uh, I know it's late over there, so we are going to end this here. Uh, on episode 445 of the DBR podcast. So Sam can get some sleep so he can catch his flight tomorrow or stay one of the, other. no, I'm Donald. I'm, I'm trying to stay up. I am going to, you're a, you're a world-class uh, world traveler. I'm not. So uh, the jet lag really, really just ruins me. And uh, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to manage that, but I appreciate you guys uh, working with me on this. Cause uh, we've had to, <laughs> I, I missed the last episode. And by the way, I didn't get to complain about Duke's schedule because they are going to play at Boston College this year on a weekend when I already know I'm going to be out of town. So I'm very angry about that. And that was like my main uh, reaction to the schedule that well, I needed to share. that's good to know now because I was going to plan to come up and, and share the view with you. But now well, I, now so, I so maybe we maybe we can talk about this, uh, as they say, offline. Uh, my apartment will be available to you that weekend if you, uh, if you want to be here. I, I might take you up on that, but we'll do that. We'll talk about that later. This is episode 445 of the DVR podcast for Sam in Paris, for Jason somewhere at CNN. I'm Donald Wine, and now it is time for the Duke band to take us home. Hey, au revoir. No, I don't think I did that well.